Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane Planadan, and you're in the right place if you're ready to create an inspired life. And we do so by working on our own personal development so we can be strong role models for those we love and mentor and strong for our own well-being. We want to be around as long as possible. Life is short. And having said that, let's get started with Chapter 30 from my Queen's University Psych 100 marathon of a course. My goodness, it's a lot of information to digest. But Chapter 30 says, Memories as Types and Stages. This is going to be fascinating. So let's get started. Memories as types and stages. Our learning objectives are to compare and contrast explicit and implicit memory, identifying the features that define each. Explain the function and duration of eidetic and echoic memories. Summarize the capacities of short-term memory and explain how working memory is used to process information in it. As you can see, if you're watching this on YouTube, in Table 9.1, Memory Conceptualized in Terms of Types, Stages, and Processes, psychologists conceptualize memory in terms of types, in terms of stages, and in terms of processes. In this section, we will consider the two types of memory, explicit memory and implicit memory, and then the three major memory stages, sensory, short-term, and long-term. Then, in the next section, we will consider the nature of long-term memory with a particular emphasis on the cognitive techniques we can use to improve our memories. Our discussion will focus on the three processes that are central to long-term memory, encoding, storage, and retrieval. So if you can't see this chart, it's really quite simple. Under types, it has the three listed, explicit, implicit, and sensory memory as stages, short-term, long-term, and encoding, and as processes, storage and retrieval. So let's begin with explicit memory. When we assess memory by asking a person to consciously remember things, we are measuring explicit memory. Explicit memory refers to knowledge or experiences that can be consciously remembered. I have another figure here we'll go over in a minute. In this figure, there are two types of explicit memory, episodic and somatic. Episodic memory refers to the first-hand experiences that we have had. For example, recollections of our high school graduation day or the fantastic dinner we had in New York last year. And then somatic memory refers to our knowledge of facts and concepts about the world. For example, the absolute value of negative 90 is greater than the absolute value of 9. And that one definition of the word affect is the experience of feeling or emotion. So in this chart, it has under explicit memories, which requires conscious awareness. In one uh, square, it has somatic memory, facts and general knowledge, and the other square, episodic memory, personally experienced events. And then in the next category for implicit memory, which does not require conscious awareness, it has procedural memory, which is motor and cognitive skills, priming, enhanced identification of objects or words, and learning through classical conditioning. Explicit memory is assessed using measures in which the individual being tested must consciously attempt to remember the information. 
A recall memory is a measure of explicit memory that involves bringing from memory information that has previously been remembered. We rely on our recall memory when we take an essay test because the test requires us to generate previously remembered information. A multiple choice test is an example of recognition memory test, a measure of explicit memory that involves determining whether information has been seen or learned before. Your own experiences taking tests will probably lead you to agree with the scientific research finding that recall is more difficult than recognition. Recall, such as required on essay tests, involves two steps. First, generating an answer, and then determining whether it seems to be the correct one. Recognition, as on multiple choice tests, only involves determining which item from the list seems most correct. Although they involve different processes, recall and recognition memory measures tend to be correlated. Students who do better on multiple choice exams will also by and large do better on an essay exam. A third way of measuring memory is known as relearning. Measures of relearning or savings assesses how much more quickly information is processed or learned when it is studied again after it has already been learned but then forgotten. If you have taken some French courses in the past, for instance, you might have forgotten most of the vocabulary you learned, but if you were to work on your French again, you'd learn the vocabulary much faster the second time around. Relearning can be more sensitive measure of memory than either recall or recognition because it allows assessing memory in terms of how much or how fast rather than simply correct versus incorrect responses. Relearning also allows us to measure memory for procedures like driving a car or playing a piano piece, as well as memory for facts and figures. Next is implicit memory. While explicit memory consists of things that we can consciously report that we know, implicit memory refers to knowledge that we cannot consciously access. However, implicit memory is nevertheless exceedingly important to us because it has a direct effect on our behavior. Implicit memory refers to the influence of experience on our behavior, even if the individual is not aware of those influences. And they refer back to, again to the figure in 9.2 that there are three general types of implicit memory, procedural memory, classic conditioning, effects, and priming. And we've already briefly gone through that part. Procedural memory refers to our often unexplainable knowledge of how to do things. When we walk from one place to another, speak to another person in English, dial a cell phone, or play a video game, we are using procedural memory. Procedural memory allows us to perform complex tasks, even though we may not be able to explain to others how we do them. There's no way to tell someone how to ride a bicycle. A person has to learn by doing it. The idea of implicit memory helps explain how infants are able to learn. The ability to crawl, walk, and talk are procedures, and these skills are easily, efficiently developed while we are children, despite the fact that as adults, we have no conscious memory of having learned them. The second type of implicit memory is classical conditioning effects, in which we learn often without effort or awareness to associate neutral stimuli, such as sound or light, with another stimulus, such as food which creates a naturally occurring response, such as enjoyment or salivation. The memory for the association is demonstrated when the conditioned stimulus, the sound, begins to create the same response as the unconditioned stimulus, the food, 
did before learning. Ah, is Pavlov in the back of your mind right now? The final type of implicit memory is known as priming or changes in behavior as a result of experiences that have happened frequently or recently. Priming refers both to the activation of knowledge. For example, we can prime the concept of kindness by presenting people with words related to kindness and to the influence of that activation on behavior. People who are primed with the concept of kindness may act more kindly. One measure of the influence of priming on implicit memory is the word fragment test, in which a person is asked to fill in missing letters to make words. You can try this yourself. First, try to complete the following word fragments, but work on each one for only three or four seconds. Do any of words pop to mind? So what this word fragment is, if you're not watching this on YouTube, is a sort of a fill in the blank, right? Now, it's going to be difficult for you to do this uh, if you're listening. So if you get a chance, pop over to, to the YouTube channel for, for this segment, because then it goes on to say, now read the following sentence carefully. He got his material from shelves, checked them out, and then left the building. And then based on having just read that, you go back to the word fragments and then try and make words out of it. So the first word ended up being library and the third word ended up being book. But then we weren't able to solve the puzzle on the other two because they were actually not library related. The, uh, they were physician and Shays, by the way. This difference in implicit memory probably occurred because as you read the sentence, the concept of library, perhaps a book, was primed, even though they were never mentioned explicitly. Once a concept is primed, it influences our behaviors, for instance, on word fragment tests. Our everyday behaviors are influenced by priming in a way a wide variety of situations. Seeing an advertisement for cigarettes may make us start smoking. Seeing the flag of our home country may arouse patriotism. And seeing a student from a rival school may arouse our competitive spirit. And these influences on our behaviors may occur without being aware of them. Research focus. Priming outside awareness influences behavior. One of the most important characteristics of implicit memories is that they are frequently formed and used automatically without much effort or awareness on our part. In one demonstration of the automaticity and influence of priming effects, John Barge and his colleagues conducted a study in which they showed undergraduate students lists of five scrambled words, each of which they were to make into a sentence. Furthermore, for half of the research participants, the words were related to stereotypes of the elderly. These participants saw words such as the following. In Victoria, retired live people. Bingo man, the forgetful plays. <laughs> so then they had to unscramble those words, right? In Victoria, retired people live. live. Retired people live in Victoria, that type of thing. The other half of the research participants also made sentences, but from words that had nothing to do with elderly stereotypes. The purpose of this task was to prime stereotypes of elderly people in memory for some of the participants, but not for others. The experimenters then assessed whether the priming of elderly stereotypes would have an effect on the student's behavior, and indeed it did. When the research participant had gathered all of his or her belongings, thinking the experiment was over, 
the experimenter thanked him or her for participating and gave directions to the closest elevator. Then, without participants knowing it, the experimenters recorded the amount of time the participants spent walking from the doorway of the experimental room to the elevator. And they have a figure here that shows that uh, <laughs> participants who had made, made sentences using words related to elderly stereotypes took on the behaviors of the elderly and they walked significantly more slowly as they left the experiment room. So that's kind of interesting. To determine if these priming effects occurred out of the awareness of the participants, Barg and his colleagues asked still another group of students to complete the priming task and then to indicate whether they thought the words they had used to make the sentences had any relationship to each other or could possibly have influenced their behavior in any way. These students had no awareness of the possibility that the words might have been related to the elderly or could have influenced their behavior. Next is stages of memory, sensory, short-term, and long-term memory. Another way of understanding memory is to think about it in terms of stages that describe the length of time that information remains available to us. According to this approach, information begins in sensory memory, moves to short-term memory, and eventually moves to long-term memory. But not all information makes it through all three stages. Most of it's forgotten. Whether the information moves from shorter duration memory into longer duration memory, or whether it's lost from memory entirely, depends on how the information is attended to and processed. There's a chart here, if you're watching it on YouTube, um, also of how that kind of flows. And you can see that once you reach short-term memory, once you start rehearsing, it starts getting encoded into your long-term memory. But that's where the repetition comes in. So the memory duration. Memory can characterize in terms of stages, the length of time that information remains available to us. So let's begin with sensory memory. Sensory memory refers to the brief storage of sensory information. Sensory memory is a memory buffer that lasts only very briefly and then, unless it is attended to and passed on for more processing, is forgotten. The purpose of sensory memory is to give the brain some time to process the incoming sensations and to allow us to see the world as an unbroken stream of events rather than as individual pieces. Visual sensory memory is known as iconic memory. Iconic memory was first studied by the psychologist George Sperling. In his research, Sperling showed participants a display of letters in rows. However, the displays lasted only about 50 milliseconds. Then Sperling gave his participants a recall test in which they were asked to name all the letters that they could remember. On average, the participants could remember only about one quarter of the letters they had seen. He found that when he cued the participants to report one of the three rows of letters, they could do it, even if the cue wasn't given shortly after the display had been removed. The research demonstrated the existence of iconic memory. Sperling reasoned that the participants had seen all the letters, but could remember them only very briefly, making it impossible for them to report them all. To test this idea, in his next experiment, he first showed the same letters, but then after the display had been removed, he signaled to the participants to report the letters from either the first, second, or third row. In this condition, the participants now reported almost all the letters in that row. This finding confirmed Sperling's hunch. 
Participants had access to all the letters in their iconic memories, and if the task was short enough, they were able to report on the part of the display he asked them to. The short enough is the length of iconic memory, which turns out to be 250 milliseconds, which is a quarter of a second. Auditory sensory memory is known as echoic memory. In contrast to iconic memories, which decay very rapidly, echoic memories can last as long as four seconds. This is convenient as it allows you, among other things, to remember the words that you said at the beginning of a long sentence when you get to the end of it, and to take notes on your psychology professor's most recent statement, even after he or she has finished saying it. In some people, iconic memory seems to last longer, a phenomenon known as eidetic imagery or photographic memory, in which people can report details of an image over long periods of time. These people who often suffer from psychological disorders such as autism claim that they can see an image long after it has been presented and can often report accurately on that image. There's also some evidence for eidetic memories in hearing. Some people report that their echoic memories persist for unusually long periods of time. The composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart may have possessed eidetic memory for music because even when he was very young and had not yet had a great deal of musical training, he could listen to long compositions and play them back almost perfectly. Next is short-term memory. Most of the information that gets into sensory memory is forgotten, but information that we turn our attention to with the goal of remembering it may pass into short-term memory. Short-term memory is a place where small amounts of information can be temporarily kept for more than a few seconds, but usually less than one minute. Hmm. Information in short-term memory is not stored permanently, but rather becomes available for us to process. And the process that we use to make sense of, modify, interpret, and store information in short-term memory are known as working memory. Although it is called memory, working memory is not a store of memory like short-term memory, but rather a set of memory procedures or operations. Imagine, for instance, that you are asked to participate in a task such as this one, which is a measure of working memory. Each of the following questions appears individually on a computer screen and then disappears after you answer the question. And I'll just give you one for instance. Is 10 times 2 minus 5 15? Answer yes or no. Then remember S. And it goes on. To successfully accomplish a task, you have to answer each of the math problems correctly and at the same time remember the letter that follows the task. Then after the six questions, you must list the letters that appeared in each of the trials in the correct order. So in this particular example, the first letter was S. So you'd have to remember the first letter was in the letter S and then the, the rest of the letters. So, but to accomplish this difficult task, you need to use a variety of skills. You clearly need to use STM, short-term memory, as you must keep the letters in storage until you are asked to list them. But you also need a way to make the best use of your available attention and processing. For instance, you might decide to use a strategy of repeat the letters twice and quickly solve the next problem, and then repeat the letters twice again, including the new one. 
keeping this strategy or others like it going in this role of working memories, central executive, the part of working memory that directs attention and processing. The central executive will make use of whatever strategy seem to be best for the given task. For instance, the central executive will direct the rehearsal process and at the same time direct the visual cortex to form an image of the list of letters in memory. You can see that although short-term memory is involved, the processes that we use to operate on the material in memory are also critical. Short-term memory is limited in both the length and the amount of information it can hold. Peterson and Peterson found that when people were asked to remember a list of three letter strings, then they were immediately asked to perform a distracting task, counting backward by threes, the material was quickly forgotten such that by 18 seconds, it was virtually gone. And there's a nice chart here <laughs> that shows the decay. Research found, researchers found that information that was not rehearsed decayed quickly from memory. One way to prevent the decay of information from short-term memory is to use working memory to rehearse it. Maintenance rehearsal is the process of repeating information mentally or out loud with the goal of keeping it in memory. We engage in maintenance rehearsal to keep something that we want to remember. For example, a person's name, email address, or phone number. In mind, long, <laughs> in mind, so keep that in mind, long enough to write it down, use it, or potentially transfer it to long-term memory. If we continue to rehearse information, it will stay in short-term memory until we stop rehearsing it. But there's also a capacity limit to short-term memory. So it gives us a little thing to try reading uh, the following rules of numbers one row at a time at a rate of about one number each second. Then when you have finished each row, close your eyes and write down as many as numbers as you can remember. So uh, if you're listening to this, you can, you can try this at home later, <laughs> especially if you're driving and listening to it. But you, you basically write down... Uh, set of numbers the first set of numbers will have three the next four five six seven eight nine ten ten is the maximum and then you can go back and test yourself and if you're really interested in this i'm gonna add a link in my show notes i did a whole episode about a book called moonwalking with einstein that is all about how we can remember everything anyways moving on if you are like the average person, you will have found that on this test of working memory, known as a digit span test, you did pretty well up to about the fourth line, and then you started having trouble. I bet you missed some of the numbers in the last three rows and did pretty poorly on the last one. The digit span of most adults is between five and nine digits, with an average about seven. Aha, this is funny, because I just did a show on the magic of number seven about the cognitive psychologist George Miller referred to seven plus or minus two pieces of information as a magic number in short-term memory. But if we can only hold a maximum of about nine digits in short-term memory, then how can we remember larger amounts of information than this? For instance, how can we ever remember a 10-digit phone number long enough to dial? One way we're able to expand our ability to remember things in short-term memory is by using a memory technique called chunking. Chunking is the process of organizing information into smaller groups, chunks, thereby increasing the number of items that can be held in short-term memory, for instance, 
try to remember this string of 12 letters. X-O-F-C-B-A-N-N-C-V-T-M. You probably won't do that well because the number of letters is more than the magic number seven. Now try again with this one. C-T-V-C-B-C-T-S-N-H-B-O. <laughs> this is funny. Would it help you if I pointed out that the material in this string could be chunked into four sets of three letters each? I think it would because, because then rather than remembering 12 letters, you would only have to remember the names of four television stations. In this case, chunking changes the number of items you have to remember from 12 to only four. So CTV is a television station, as is CBC, as is TSN, as is HBO. Experts rely on chunking to help them process complex information. Herbert Simon and William Chase showed chess masters and chess novices various positions of pieces on a chessboard for a few seconds each. The experts did a lot better than the novices in remembering the positions because they were able to see the big picture. They didn't have to remember the position of each of the pieces individually, but chunked the pieces into several larger layouts. But when the researchers showed both groups random chess positions, positions that they would be very unlikely to occur in real games, both groups did equally poor, because in this situation, the experts lost their ability to organize the layouts. The same occurs for basketball. Basketball players recall actual basketball positions much better than do non-players, but only when the positions make sense in terms of what's happening on the court or what is likely to happen in the near future and thus can be chunked into bigger units. That part's really quite fascinating. So they have a figure of two different chess boards and it says possible and impossible chess positions. Experience matters. Experienced chess players are able to recall the positions of the game on the right much better than those who are chess novices. But the experts do not do any better than the novices in remembering the positions on the left, which cannot occur in a real game. I only wish I knew more about chess in order to understand it, but it's, it's, it gives us a simplistic example. So some key takeaways from this chapter. Memory refers to the ability to store and retrieve information over time. For some things, our memory is very good, but our active cognitive processing of information ensures that memory is never an exact replica of what we have experienced. Explicit memory refers to experiences that can be intentionally and consciously remembered, and it is measured using recall, recognition, and relearning. Explicit memory includes episodic and somatic memories. Measures of relearning, also known as savings, assesses how much more quickly information is learned when it is studied again after it has already been learned, but then forgotten. Implicit memory refers to the influence of experience on behavior, even if the individual is not aware of those influences. The three types of implicit memory are procedural memory, classical conditioning, and priming. Information processing begins in sensory memory, moves to short-term memory, and eventually moves to long-term memory. Maintenance, rehearsal, and chunking are used to keep information in short-term memory. The capacity of long-term memory is large, and there is no known limit to what we can remember. Ha-ha!
How fantastic was that? Learning all about our wonderful memory and how we have no limit in its capacity. It's really quite fascinating. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and share the show with someone you know or a classmate or just someone who may be interested in these topics because they're lots of fun to learn and hear about. I will see you in the next chapter of vocabulary on what we just discussed. <laughs>